Well, looks like you lost again, Dad. Sorry. Yeah, oh, I can't believe I lost again. You know, Aaron, these, these rules are just poorly designed to represent the historical tactics that I'm trying to use here. If these rules were written better, then, you know, I could have won this game. You can't always blame the rules design, Dad. Yeah, I know, I know, you're right. You know, I think the scenario designer really blew it on this scenario design. I mean, I don't think my side can ever possibly win. everybody. Welcome to another episode, episode 62 of The Two Half Squads, the only podcast dedicated mostly 100% to the greatest game in the world, Advanced Squad Leader. I am your host Dave, and your host Jeff has got called into work tonight, and I thought I would take a chance and record a show on my own which means it's going to be a lot less entertaining than the other shows. But today is January 30th, and I'd like to get something out in early February, so I'm going to give it a shot. If Jeff shows up, he'll join us later. And if not, you're stuck with just little old me. And don't worry, I promise I won't insert 40 different Looney Tunes sound effects. Like I did that one time. Ooh, I done a bad thing. Just kidding, just kidding. I promise I won't do it again. All right, everybody. Well, without Jeffrey here to add some fun banter and comedy, I'm just going to proceed right to some letters. Well, I'm just not enjoying that as much as I would if Jeff was here. There's no point in dancing around, so let's just cut that short and get right into the letters. I have a letter here from Eric. He says, I just finished episode 60. Heard Jeff wasn't happy with the Looney Tunes episode. I must say I thought it was very, very well done. Great editing. Of course, doing it more than once would be terribly annoying. But I enjoyed that episode quite a bit. Thanks, guys. Yes! One letter in my favor. And since Jeff is not here to add to that, I thought I'd read his response he had sent to uh, Eric. And thank you, Eric, so much. Jeff wrote, Okay, Eric, what has Dave promised you in return for positive feedback on Looney Times? Cash? His copy of Kotobushido? His lucky yellow and white dice? Come on, man, confess. Whatever it is, I'll double it for a retraction letter and a new email with your honest opinion, etc., etc., So anyway, making sure we get Jeff's opinion made clear on that episode. Thanks, Eric. And we have a letter here from a person named Dave. My wife got me ASLSK1 for Christmas. Uh, For you new players, I want to point out that that stands for that acronym stands for Advanced Squad Leader Starter Kit 1, just to be sure you know that. 
My, my wife got me ASL SK-1 for Christmas. At first I was excited, and then I opened the rule book. Confused was an understatement. Still excited, but very confused. And then I listened to your first newbie-doo. I cannot thank you enough for this. Most of it makes sense now. I just want to say a huge thank you. Hope you have more planned in the future. Dave, we hear you. Many player, many listeners want us to get going on another newbie-doo. And so, without promising any kind of timeline, we're going to tell you we're going to try and get to one as soon as we can. So much to do, so little time. And this letter from Tim Stevens. Hey, on episode 59, you had a piece about music from the World War II era. While historically accurate is a mile slow, is a mite slow for my personal taste. Go to YouTube and check out this band called Sabaton, a European heavy metal band that sings about war. They have a song called Panzerkampf, which is about Kursk, and is shown with the lyrics and the picture videos from the battlefield called from the History Channel and the like. A little something to get you pumped up before playing your next Eastern Front scenario. Yeah, we're going to pump you up, and I'm going to run for governor of California. Sounds like a great idea. We'll put a link to those YouTubes on the show. Thanks, Tim. And here's a letter from Andy, which is going to illustrate why sometimes listening to the letters is a very good thing to do. Hi, guys. Continued my quest to listen to all of your podcasts over the winter break which sadly is coming to an end. Your most recent show with the MMP rep interview was interesting and a bit baffling to me. In response to a Facebook question concerning components, he described, a bit condescendingly, ASL components as elegant. My word would be obsolete. And then in the same breath, he praised games such as the Warriors of God for their exceptional maps and components. Actually, in Keith's defense, this is Dave speaking now, I, I believe he did take several breaths between those topics. He continues with the letter. I have Warriors of God. It's a beautiful and great game. Why not pimp out ASL? Let's face it. Uber ASL fans, such as yourselves, would grumble. Yeah, maybe I am an Uber fan. But in the end, you would buy everything ASL. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he's right about that too. What MMP should do is conduct an experiment, release the next starter kit, which are standalone games, with components and map quality similar to Conflict of Heroes or Fighting Formations, and see what happens. My guess is that sales would eclipse earlier starter kits by a wide margin and pull more players into ASL, with other great tactical games on the market, such as the recent Band of Brothers, which is awesome. MMP could see demand for ASL wane altogether without updating the game. Perhaps ASL 3rd Edition. Thanks again for the informative and entertaining podcast. Well, those are some fine suggestions. The other counters are great, of course. I am an Uber fan, and I love the counters as they are, and maybe it's possible if the game's introduced with the fancy counters that once the players realize what a great game it is, they might even uh, start to learn to enjoy the classic-looking counters. Who knows? And this letter from Ken Knott... Dear Half Squads, January 2nd, 2012 was a day for me that will will forever live in something very similar to infamy, but probably not exactly. 
I left Pittsburgh at 11 a.m. for a leisurely five-hour drive home, back to work in real life. That drive in the end took 11 hours. I drove in the worst winter conditions I've ever experienced. I had no idea that in today's days and age it was possible for interstate highways to become such terrifying death traps. And he goes on with some details that are quite harrowing. So he asks, you may ask, how have I survived this? How can one man endure such misery, torturous conditions, and risk of life, yet somehow come out unscathed? That's a good question. But a better question still is, how can that same man in those same conditions not only come out unscathed, but educated, chuckling cheerfully, truly inspired, and even wishing the trip could have taken even longer? The two half-squads, I tell you, that is how. I listened to four episodes. All right, Ken. Glad that came in handy for you. And I noticed in your PS, you also say that you uh, haven't played a game of ASL since 92. And you should get back into it. And yes, you should get back into it. Just ask the rest of our listeners. Hooray! That's right, kids. He should get back into ASL, shouldn't he? Yes, indeedy. Well, this letter from Rodney. No, it's signed David. Well, David, or is it Rodney? He writes, I was listening to one of your shows, and you were talking about how you were at a convention and the ASL players there were men 40 years or older. Forgive me for not remembering which episode. I tend to listen to two or three in a day and then forget about the show for a few months. I just thought I'd let you know that I'm 32 years old and I play ASL quite frequently with a 27-year-old friend. I've even talked my 30-year-old girlfriend into playing an ASL-SK scenario or two. I love to see the game grow and gladly teach anyone with a few hours to kill and a truckload of patience, especially those my age or younger. And I am hoping we're not the youngest group of avid ASLers out there. It would be great to hear if you've met any younger players or have any younger listeners. Keep up the good work. Well, you know, fans, why don't you let us know? How old are you? Let's take a, a little poll here. Everybody, write us and tell us your age. Or you can post it on the comments section for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd like to let David or Rodney know what the age is of our, of our listening audience and of the ASL community. Maybe you really old guys can not bother checking in. We know you're out there. And with my PASL club, Palatine Area Advanced Squad Leaders, I had some younger players playing. And it's interesting, when you get to be my age... Oh, 51, that the age thing, difference between people doesn't matter much anymore. I had a student teacher that was at our school come and play at my house, and he enjoyed the game fine. He's a social studies teacher. Uh, he didn't come back, though, and <laughs> I kept him on the email list for a while. As my friends know I like to delete you if you're not responding to my emails or you don't show up for a while. I just don't want to have 20 names on a, on a club list and then you know, not have people showing up. It just kind of bugs me. It's no, no offense against anyone, but so this young gentleman, um, I said, hey, you know, you're not going to be able to come back, are you? You know, it seems like, and he said, oh, yeah, no, you know, everyone, you know, they just seemed so much older than me. <laughs> so I kind of forgot, like, when you're 20-something, you might be a bit intimidated by these older people. But our age range in the club had gone, I bet from the late 30s to the 60s, a couple guys had shown up uh, that were in their 60s, and it was just amazing, and, you know, that age doesn't matter anymore, 35-year-old can play a 60-year-old guy, and they, talking about the game, having a great time, so, anyway, thanks for writing, and uh, I think I'll wrap it up with that letter, 
And now it's time for What's, what's in, in the, the box. box? All right, Jeff, and what is in the box? Oh, Jeff's still not here. Darn. No wonder this is such a challenge. Well, what I have in the box is the Allied Miners AFV cards. 42 of them for $6.75. Oh, that was from Alex Key. But for $8 from Fanatic Enterprises. $8 for the Allied Miners Armor Fighting Vehicle cards from Fanatic Enterprises. And Alex Key may have some around too. And I have the original Armor Fighting Vehicle cards. I think they might have come out with Hedgerow Heck or Streets of Fire or something like that. I actually can't remember. Because I'm so old now at 51 years of age. And these cards are nice. They're four to a sheet. The problem is they're not perforated. Guess you could always break out the paper slicer, get those cut down. You could try using your corner counter cutter, corner, <laughs> corner cutter. I don't know if that would work on these cards. Uh, they do have a nice little photograph of the vehicle on there instead of a schematic illustration I actually don't even know what schematic means but it it seemed appropriate at the moment uh, but you do have all these new vehicles you may not be as familiar with in the allied minor uh, OB so you do have your L6 slash 40 your L5 slash 30 I your R35 your FT17C that looks like a World War I tank to me and, of course, it did come out pretty early there. Looking at the card, well, can I find any dates on it? It's got the basic point value, the weight, the rarity factor, the armor factor, that it's radioless, that it's fully tracked, it has red MP, it has GP gun, gun something, L, long gun. L, can that be right? I don't think so. Um, MA, main armaments, a T-37 short barrel. There's the bat. What's the GP? L. I don't know. Uh, size is plus one. Movement points five. Yeah, it's your crew survival two. Yeah, I would imagine in that little tank. Uh, has some notes down here. The vehicle is considered French for excessive speed breakdown, Hamada immobilization, sand bog, etc. Crew exposed people have a plus one versus indirect fire and for direct fire from the turret's rear target facing. It has a minimum road movement rate is one. Example, i.e., road rate is non-applicable. And so it covers all the information. You have the slots on these cards. There's an A, B, C, and D. And those are for you to place markers on. So you don't have to put your markers on the actual tank counter on the board. You could mark off MA as malfunctioned. AP9, you can mark it out of uh, AP. And there's an armor leader box. You could set your little armor leader on there, too. And I always find those very handy. I never do tend to use my AV cards for that as much as I like using them for a quick way to look up the notes in the vehicle without breaking out the rule book. Also, you can keep these cards. I keep them in my box with my main counters and my dice and stuff. So I always have them with me if I go to a friend's house. I don't have to lug around my Chapter H notes. Um, so, 
some of them are, photos are in color, some are not. Maybe they just they could use a color photo if they had one available. The country flag symbols are on these cards in color. Too bad I don't actually know what the flag symbols mean. Oh, I think this one's Poland with the white eagle on the red symbol, white half flag, red bottom half on the flag. Uh, one of the vehicles there is the WZ.29, the Ursus, and so on. Other nationalities look like the Danish, Norwegians, Yugoslavians, Belgians, Greeks, Poles. So lots of vehicles. I obviously won't read them all off to you. And of course, it has the uh, very famous Vickers EJWB and the TKS. I always wondered what one of those looked like. You know, the nice thing is you get a good picture right there. That is an interesting looking thing. And you get the the most fun armor fighting vehicle name of all, the Nimbus. I guess it's not an armor fighting vehicle, actually. <laughs> Except on the bottom of this card it says, please refer to the chapter age notes for the very detailed and involved rules for this vehicle. Yeah, I don't blame them. They're not going to cram them on. I mean, I don't really remember them all, but it is a, the Nimbus is like a motorcycle thingy with, I don't know if it has like a sidecar. I kind of forget. I know I've, I've used them in games before. I guarantee you that. So anyway, I, I would recommend, of course, having armor fighting vehicle cards as quick reference sheets. And you might really enjoy having the counter space to set these cards to the side of your game and to mark off things like, again, a uh, CMG and a broken MA on the different vehicles. And I'm assuming since the vehicle M39, oh, which doesn't have a photo, uh-oh, uh-oh, so I guess not all of them have the nice photographs. Most of them do. The M39 has just three slots ABC, so I'm sure that you only got three with the main game. Others have four, FT-17, the 302T Polish vehicle, and so on. So anyway, I highly recommend the armor fighting vehicle cars of all the nationalities, and even these, for eight bucks, you can't go too wrong, even if you have to cut them up yourself. The Allied Miners Armored Fighting Vehicle Cards. And that's what's in the box. We shall seize the bridges, it's all a question of bridges, with thunderclap surprise. I love the smell of my pub in the morning. It smells like... And that little ditty means it's time for a movie review with just Dave's opinion on this movie. I had taken the time several months ago to watch Von Ryan's Express with my wife and my son Adam, who was in eighth grade. And I always remember 
the ending scene of Von Ryan's Express with Frank Sinatra running down the train tracks, reaching for the train, that sacrificial moment, that dramatic moment. And I thought it was just super cool with his leather vest and his cap on. Anyway, so I got out Von Ryan's Express and watched this, rented it, I guess, or found it on maybe Netflix, um, and watched the movie. And so, some observations. Well, a little synopsis here. Colonel Ryan, Von Ryan, enters the Italian prison camp. And this is run by a British officer. And the Americans in the camp want the food and the medicine that the Brits are hoarding for their escape. So the British being very disciplined, they're hoarding all this stuff for the big escape from this prison camp. And the Americans are like, we need it now. Typical Americans, I suppose. <laughs> no offense, my American friends. And um, Ryan ends up taking over control and ends the escape plans to get more meds and food from the Italian dudes. But the Italian leader, Battaglia, won't give them clothes. And so... Grant, oh, sorry, I can't read my own notes. <laughs> There's a great scene when they burn their raggy clothes in a big pile as the Italians watch and are appalled at their behavior. So they're all running around naked. I told my wife to avert her eyes. And my son, of course, thought it was great. Now the Italians surrender to, uh, and the prisoners escape. Why did the Italians surrender? I have forgotten. Maybe the camp was being rescued, or I don't remember now. But my notes say the Italians surrender and the prisoners escape, but are caught by the Germans and taken on a train to another prison camp or somewhere. And thus begins this whole Von Ryan's Express train concept. Well, the good things about this film, well, you know, the locations. And the sets. Uh, just fantastic, beautiful scenery there. Uh, Sinatra's an okay actor, I felt. Uh, had a great cast of familiar faces in this film. Uh, I found it to be very well written, as did my wife. And there were several humorous moments. Uh, my wife and son actually really enjoyed it, and I was very surprised at that. Because I think the film offers more than just your normal battle movie with things blowing up and people getting killed and cool weapons uh they you know it also had this storyline and it had this bit where the ger the uh, prisoners are disguised as germans because they take over the train and they're um trying to do this little trickery and there's suspense and that kind of stuff going on which my wife really enjoys and my son surprisingly he really liked it he said it was suspenseful also um some of the other actors in there I mentioned, there's Trevor Howard and James Brolin, um, Color by Deluxe, you gotta love that, filmed in Cinemascope for that extra wide picture, uh, music by Jerry Goldsmith. I thought, I thought the music was a little heavy on the percussion, uh, really great for the sneaky scenes, and sometimes maybe a bit too much or a bit too loud. Um, just, yeah, it just seemed sometimes a little too much, I think. Um, 
action battle scenes, there weren't a whole lot here. You know, you're not talking about a war movie in a traditional sense. Maybe why it would be more appealing to the whole family. Bad things. About, there was the uh, some planes coming in. I forget what kind they were. I didn't write it down. German planes trying to blow up the train as it's going along this mountain pass. What were they escaping to Switzerland or something? So that was always good action and some cool scenes and the Germans chasing them and shooting at the train. But, um, you know, there was really some minor blood and only a couple of minor swear words. So for the ratings, you, you can get away with watching this with your kids, depending on your particular taste and standards. Uh, I would think probably even my 10-year-old could watch it and would be fine with it. And I think partially due to the success that this film had with my wife and my son, and just that fond place it has in my heart from childhood, like I guess I was watching on the 3.30 movie after school one day or something. Um, I recommend the film highly. Von Ryan's Express. Remember, I'm an old grog nerd, so I like that stuff. Uh, but I recommend it. Well, currently, listeners, I know we don't have any contest going on for your pleasure, but we do have a few of those old songs left from the song contest that have recently been recorded. And with no further ado, we like to present Hooli Dice. Okay, I know you don't get that reference, so this was sent in by Steve Earthpig. Thank you very much, Steve. And he says, uh, this is his first time contacting us. He's listened to most of the episodes, thinks it's great, believes banter is good. And I'm sorry there's not enough banter in this show. Right, Jeff? Yeah, that's right, Dave. No, I'm not going to start talking like Gollum, a little schizophrenia. But <laughs> I hope to talk to you guys at the next Open. And he says... I actually have not played Craig Hooli Hoolistan yet, but there is a running gag about his dice among the TCASL, Twin Cities Advanced Squad Leader, crew. And so, I suppose, any of our friends in Minnesota will know maybe Craig Hoolistan and his, or not, yeah, Craig Hooli Hoolistan and his miraculous dice. So, just substitute the name of your own local low-rolling ASLer for Hooli, and you might enjoy this song just as much as the Minnesota guys will, I hope. And here it is, Hooli Dice. I can't roll low if I want to, but Craig Hooliston can. Watch as he kills my panther with a lowly tin can. I can't roll low if I want to, though I try and try and try. When my ten egg three, he rolls an MC, and then my ten egg three dies. Hooli dice, hooli dice, they're out of control. Hooli dice, hooli dice, oh look, another roll low. I can't roll low if I want to, my dice come up high. But I see Craigets and other snake guys, and then I cry. I can't roll low if I want to, though I try and try and try. When my 10 egg 3 rolls an NMC, and then my 10 egg 3 dies. Oh, he dies, he dies, he 
he's out of control. Pooley dice, Pooley dice, so look, another roll, oh, oh, oh. another low roll. A Hooli dice. Well, all right. All right, thank you. Uh, well, the two Half Squad singer thanks you. Yeah, he thanks you, whoever he is. And we're, we're really sorry we couldn't present it done by the two Half Squad singers, those lovely ladies who would have made it sound a bit more beautiful and wonderful than the two Half Squad singer, but we'll take what we can get. Thanks. Well, listeners, I would like to take a little moment to talk about my Palatine Advanced squad palatine area advanced squad leaders club i put them on a little hiatus while i take some time to game with my boys and hopefully festung budapest will come out and i'll be playing a campaign game with bob but i hope that by talking about the club it might encourage you to get your own club going and bring new players into the hobby um, I'm looking back at the records that I kept for the Passel Club, and session one had four players, and I remember remember that we met at uh, Charlie Prosex's old game shop down here in Winfield, over here in Illinois. A lot of you local listeners will know about Prosex Hobby Shop, and we had the four players in that first game, and then I ran a couple of weekend tournaments, and the game just kept rolling along. And we hosted club meetings eventually back here at my house. And included in the club meetings um, are lots of new players coming from all over the area. And it looks like our total number of games played were 337 so far. And I'm hoping to resume the club after a little hiatus. But you know how it... Sometimes we break those good habits that we have, and it's hard to restart them again. But we had played 337 games, individual games, within 133 sessions. So if I had eight people show up, we played one-on-one. That's four games in that session. And the original first game that we had played back there number one was in 95 wow even that blows my mind february 13th 1995 now within the course of those years being the last game i had played before the break was december 7th 2011 
in those 16 years, we saw a very large quantity of players come through. Get my papers out. Um, putting the number of players at 46, I think. Although some people had played, and I wrote over their name on my little handwritten record of the players' win-loss records. Um, but I thought I'd look through some of those players for you here. I know this might bore you, obviously, if you're not from our club. But early on, I kind of started with uh, local gamers from ProSex Hobby Shop who played miniature war games and some guys from church. So from those two sources, I was able to get a bunch of guys playing Advanced Squad Leader. So think again about places you might get guys to come in and, and start gaming. Um, one, Chris Walters goes way back, and Larry Schroth. And uh, those guys were from the church. Rick Hollander, Greg Haas. And I had an old college buddy play, Jim McDermott. He came to the club quite often, then once I got the club started, used to play individually with him quite a bit. So transitioning him to the club then was easy. Um, in those early days, a lot of guys like that were coming. Again, those connections from miniature gaming and church. And then came a period when I posted on, on the MMP website. And so at that point, I started pulling in more people. Um... Um, Bob Holmstrom moved up north. He started coming. Keith Burkout saw us there. Uh, Dan Sullivan was a guy I pulled in from my wife's work. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, Doug Bennett found us online. Mike Stubitz found me online. I have a Mark F. had attended. He'd come three times. A lot of these guys came two, three times, but a lot hit about the 20-game range and... Many of these gentlemen have up into the 30 to 80 games played here in the club. Uh, Joe Pelham found us online. He did a lot of podcasts with us and uh, I think broke off and runs his own club now. Joe, uh, miss ya. And Tim Klepicek came and he's done some work with a podcast too. He found us online. John Fuju is an ex-student of mine from my school. Now, there you go. Talk about the age difference we had talked about earlier. Dave Timonen uh, was a husband of a, a gal who went to my church and then started attending church coming here. And um, Jeff Hallett, the very famous Jeff Hallett, who also found us online and started to come over to the club. There was John Pyers down from, up from, down from Chicago. I guess he drove down to here. Doug Grease, young guy getting... Younger, younger gentlemen getting into gaming. Uh, Mike Lemke. I actually met him at a miniatures wargaming weekend. And he walked up and started talking to us at the, at the table. And I said, oh, you know, by the way, got this club going. Uh, Jim Poffenberger was a guy from church. Rich Spilkey. He, of course, heard us online on our show. And once the show started playing, a lot of guys... Heard the podcast of the two half squads. That drummed up some more local Illinois people who really wanted to come out for a couple games. I don't think they had any attended joining the club. Or they wish they could have, but driving that 40 minutes on a weeknight gets to be a real challenge. So if you're going to host your own club, you know you might want to host it on a weekend. That Saturday night game slot's going to open up 
making more people able to come from a greater distance. Uh, Josh Stein came up. He was from my old Westmont, where I grew up. Um, a guy named Larry dropped in, and Will Marrero played several games, and Jack Murphy, Justin Tunner. He was a student teacher that I talked about earlier in the show. Chip Dickerson joined us. And then later on, I roped in Mark Woods, another guy who was from our, my church originally and started coming to my miniatures sessions and said, hey, try ASL. And now he had recorded that recent ASL Extra episode. Dan Janizek came in before he moved away. Ron Schatz has come for many, many games. Tom Barkalo, another war gamer that I brought in. Patrick Moore found us and visited. Dave Wilson started coming from Chicago, I believe. Uh, Tom Wilcoxon and Richard Lake came, both of them, for a game or two. Uh, Mike Reese has been uh, playing at least five sessions here over the years. And then I got Steve Safford and Dan Etter. They were two gentlemen from a new church. I had switched churches and got them to come and try the game. Uh, they played four to six times each and recorded the one of the early podcasts about uh, rookies' look at the game, what they thought of it, uh, new players, you know. They weren't on that episode of the podcast. And another experience that I had had with the club was that as gentlemen get to meet each other here in my place, often they'll, you know, if they're both from Chicago and they meet a couple people from Chicago, which is could be a bad drive down on a weeknight, let me tell you, with traffic around here, they may end up just meeting up here and then talking to each other on the side and saying, let's just game at my place this Saturday and stay here and not go out to Dave's. And that's a fine thing. So think about your club as not only a place to meet new friends, but a place to have other players meet each other, and maybe they never come back. <laughs> maybe they say, hey, we live four blocks from each other. Let's start gaming together at, at our own house. And you got to think of that. Sure, you're going to miss them and wish, hey, why aren't those guys coming here anymore? That's fine. That's great. They've met up here, and now they're playing a lot of ASL together. That's great. And so I think I covered just about most of those 40 people. Uh, showing you the variety when you get a club going. You want to advertise that club. It could be at your local hobby shop. could be on the MMP website if they're still doing that. I didn't double-check that tonight. could be a lot of ways to get that advertised. Don't hesitate to find got people if you know they're interested in history maybe they're interested in other forms of gaming even video gaming which was not big let's face it when this club started but over the years you might find people that can transition from call of duty and these other video games into advanced squad leader um, one thing is to hoping to be regular with your meetings helps um, be a good host provide um, a comfortable situation, which Joe does really well. He has a much larger basement than I do. At times I would have to move things out of here to cram people in. I think the most I ever had show up was 12. Now with all these people showing up, it's really interesting that we would go from 10 players to a session to down to 8, and then 2 the next session, and then 3 sessions in a row with only 4 players here, suddenly hit 8 again, followed by 10, and then back down to six. Very, very erratic. But people come and go as they can, make them feel welcome, have people willing to teach new people the rules. And that way you can grow your club, bringing in 
players who are not experienced in the game. And I want to say to all those guys, I really, really enjoyed having you. It's been a great experience overall. I hope to start it up again in a couple months. Um, and just really a genuinely great times getting together, gathering around the tables here in the basement, and playing some advanced squad leader, talking with guys, finding out what's going on in their lives, keeping in touch. And I'd like to thank all of you for participating in the club. Thanks. And hope you too out there, listeners, can get your own club started. Well, I think I'll end the show with a little uh, 15-minute star shell tutorial to help you get using those night rules. Problem is, we haven't taught the star shell night rules yet. That's for our episode night part two, which I'm waiting for Jeff to do that one. But it may be something you can just listen to as a little preview of the star shell rules. Or um, listen to it again after we record night part two. Well, here's a star shell tutorial, and the photos should be available somewhere there on the site to go along with it. Enjoy. Now they will know why they are afraid of the dark. Now they will learn why they fear the night. Oh, come on. It won't be that bad now. All right. I'm going to try and do a little tutorial on firing off star shells. And so I've set up board one, as you can see in the photo, and I've placed in M9 a 747 with concealment X in J9, a 666, concealment H, and F8, 667, concealment RR, American units in those hexes. I've placed German units in L6, a 468 with WW concealment, J5, a 548. Concealment B, and in H5, 467, Concealment V, on top of him. Let's assume night visibility range is two hexes, so at this point, no unit can see any other enemy unit. Because night visibility range is only two, that means the unit in F8... The American 667 could move into G8 all the way along the road to J8 all the way to M8 and no German would ever see them because they're out of the night visibility range. But we want to get a uh, look at how you fire off a star shell and for illumination because they can light up an area that's three hexes wide well, not wide, three hexes from the placement of the star shell in all directions. And so the first step is no one can fire a star shell until one of these three events has occurred. And the first one is, as long as there's no friendly motorized vehicles on board and an enemy motorized vehicle changes its hex or its vehicle-covered arc within 16 hexes, which should be easy to do that, right, if the enemy has vehicles, of a friendly unit, then your 
you can fire a star shell. So in effect, you hear an enemy vehicle moving around is how I interpret that. Second situation, a friendly unit currently capable of firing a star shell has a line of sight to an enemy unit and fires a star shell. Or a gun flash is placed due to an enemy FFE or an attack versus an enemy unit. So somebody shoots and places a gun flash on your side, then you can shoot off an illuminating round. You know, oh, there's gunfire, friendly gunfire. I'm going to shoot off an illuminating round and look, see what they think they see. I mean a star shell, not an illuminating round. Hearing the vehicle, other one, or you see an enemy unit, and then you can fire one off. Then once a star shell has been fired, both sides are free to fire them from that point forward. Or defensive final fire phase by the player performing that action, of course. And it has to happen at the beginning of the phase. And it can be one attempt to fire a star shell per hex. So if you have three dudes in a hex, which I probably should have set up here for the demo but didn't, you only get one chance to fire a star shell from that hex. doesn't matter how many guys are in the hex. So I guess if you're spread out a lot, it would give you more uh, attempts to fire a star shell, see if you have one able to fire. It's much like firing a Panzerfaust. You have to roll to see if you can do it. To fire a star shell, you have to be in good order. All my units on the board are in good order. And you can't be in a pillbox, but you can fire a star shell from these buildings. So I guess you just kind of shoot it out the window. So to make the usage die roll, to have a star shell in place to fire one, a leader needs to roll a four or less, and that's on one die. And if you have a multi-man counter, it's two or less, or a crew-exposed armor-fighting vehicle. So those guys can also fire star shells. Good reason to stay crew-exposed, I guess, with your vehicles at night. Watch out for those sniper attacks against you. Now, firing off a star shell will not cause loss of concealment, and it does not inhibit your ability to do other actions, and it doesn't cause a gun flash. And it also cannot be fired from an interior building hex. You know, when you have a, a building hex that's surrounded by all building hexes, that's an interior building hex. And I don't see any on the board here tonight, so won't matter. So to start things off here, let's get moving with the Americans. Let's assume that the uh, if it was a German prep fire phase, they would not be able to fire one, uh, any kind of star shell or illuminating round off. So let's say the Germans don't prep and they don't move and the Americans don't final fire and then it goes to the American turn. So the Americans have a prep fire phase. Again, they don't have a line of sight to an enemy unit. They don't hear an enemy vehicle moving around out there. There's no gun flashes placed due to an attack versus an enemy unit. No enemy FFE has been dropped on them. So they have no ability to call in a... Uh, or to try and shoot off a star shell. And so, there'll be no prep for them. They'll start moving. So, just for fun, let's move the 667 from F8, hex F8, covered with the concealment RR. We'll move it, uh, we'll assault move it to G8. Well, that's still out of night visibility range of two hexes. 
and so the Germans cannot see an enemy unit at this time. Then let's take from hex J9 to 666 and concealment H and let's move into J8. Now at this point, out of night visibility range, no one can see them. Then we move them into K8. Now, the unit, German unit, in L6 can see an enemy unit. Now, the rule states that the, the um, German can see an enemy unit and he also has to be able to fire a star shell. He can't just see an enemy unit. So he has to be able to have a line of sight to an enemy unit and he has to fire a star shell. So if he makes his die roll and fails to have a star shell, then for the rest of the game, no one else can fire a star shell either. He has to actually see the enemy unit and get a star shell in the sky. That signals everyone else that, oh, look, star shell, we can also tr start to fire star shells. The American unit in K8 will retain its concealment because it has not moved in an illuminated hex. So, our German unit in L6 will make a usage die roll. I'll roll the die. Comes up a 2. That's enough for it to have a star shell in place and to be able to fire it. Had it been a leader, a 4 or less would work. So, I have several options at this point. I can basically take option 1, which is to fire the star shell straight up in the air, in my own hex, and then... I roll a random direction die roll, and I move the star shell one hex in that direction. So it won't be off by much if I just fire it straight up in the air. Now in this case, because the American unit is so close, it would make a lot of sense to do that. No matter where the random die roll goes, it's going to illuminate K8. So let's say he does that, and I roll a dice and it indicates it's going to end up in M6, because it can only be one hex away. Now, everything within three hexes of M6 is illuminated. So we take unit from M9, the American 747. The unit in K8 is going to stop moving, because the area lights up. So he stops moving, he keeps his concealment. Even if he's in open ground, he would keep his concealment because the you know flare goes up in the air and he freezes, drops to the ground, I assume. That keeps him concealed. So the unit from M9 will move. Uh, let's do something crazy. So he goes to L9, K9, J8, and J7. Now, once he goes to J7, he's in an illuminated location. This means he moved in an illuminated location in the open ground. He loses his concealment. Now that allows the unit in J5 to try to fire a star shell. Because the way I'm reading this rule, 1.921, is that in addition, after the player turn in which the first star shell of the scenario is fired, any unit except a leader that fires a star shell must do so at the start of the prep fire phase, enemy movement phase, 
before the attacker commences to fire or move during that phase. Since this is not after the player turn in which the first star shell is fired, I assume the rest of them can fire star shells because the first star shell's already been fired. So I'm assuming that from J5, he could roll a die to fire a star shell. Let's assume that again. He rolls a 1. He has a star shell ability to fire. Now he has another option here. He can use option 2 because he has a line of sight to a known enemy unit that's less than 9 hexes away, so he can place it in that target's hex. So let's take a star shell counter, place it right on top of J7, and then make a random direction die roll with the white die roll, the extent of error die, um, halved. So at the worst it'll be three hexes away which will illuminate that guy's hex. Now, I could also place it along the line of sight to the unit and not on the unit's hex. So I make a random placement die roll ending up with a color die direction, a 1. We place our 1 along the uh, hex side that has the hex number in it, and it goes 6, but that's halved, so this placement ends up in J4, which still illuminates I, uh, J7. Now, neither of these two star shells illuminates the uh, any enemy unit in line of sight of H5, the German unit in H5. Because the American 747 stopped moving, the German unit in H5 could opt for option 3. He can place the star shell in any hex that's exactly three hexes away from him. And then he makes a random direction die roll to find the placement of the star shell, which there's no halving on this one. It's a full, like, sniper check die roll, you know, to see where the sniper goes. So, let's say he places it three hexes away in H8, and he rolls a random die roll, which gives him direction five and three hexes away, and it would end up in E9, hex E9. That illuminates G8, but G8's not moving, so he keeps his concealment. And had that last star shell gone off board, uh, you would place an unused board up against there and go ahead and play it from where it landed off board. It would still count. So we can see that the first option, placing it in your own hex, is great if you are sure the enemy is coming into your area, because it's going to light up your area. If you have that second option, uh, line of sight to a known enemy unit, that's good to light them up and keep them from moving. If they're concealed, they can stop moving and keep their concealment. Oh, which I guess in I-7 maybe I did that. Maybe he should have stayed concealed. Had he moved to J-6, he would have been unconcealed. And that third option is, is a desperate move. You fire it in any hex, three hexes away, and then do a random die roll. You don't know where that's going to go. And that's risky. You could end up illuminating your own positions. And a unit that's illuminated can only see other illuminated areas. You know, it's like when you're standing in the light under the street light, you can't see into the darkness out there. So I don't, I don't recommend 
option three unless you're kind of desperate to light something up. Well, anyway, this you know, hope has been a little bit helpful to you, get you to break into night rules. I sure love them, and I hope you will learn to love them also. Take care. All right, Jeff, let's sign off. Oh, yeah, Jeff is not here. Man, what a drag. But he'll be here next time, and we're gonna. I'm going to sign off and say thanks for listening, and roll low and rally well, but not when you're playing me. Good night, everybody. Much point in recording banter without Jeff.